A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Good afternoon, Mr. Secretary. This is Cameron Riley. How are you, sir? Oh, I could complain, but it wouldn't do any good. <laughs> well, nothing much I can do to help you from this side of the Pacific, I'm afraid. No. Unless it's to assuage your ego, I'll try to do that over the next half hour. How about that? I don't need much of that. I'm, I'm, I'm too old for that. Oh, well. Anyway... So we got a half an hour. That's good because I told them yeah, I'd meet someone at five o'clock. Okay, good. <laughs> Great. Well, my uh, partner in crime, uh, Ray from Virginia, hasn't showed up. I don't know what's going on with him, so I'll just launch into it. We'll go. I'll fly well, solo. I got an email from him a few hours ago with some questions. I saw that. And, uh, yeah. I answered him. Yeah. But, uh, you might have scared him off, say. Doug. So let me do a little uh, bit of an introduction, uh, and um, you can correct me if any of this is wrong or out of date. Our guest today, Doug LaFlette, is the Secretary of State of Wisconsin, a position to which he was first elected in 1974 when I was still wearing little boy pants. He's been the Secretary of State pretty much ever since then, with a short break, I think, for a few years in the late 70s and early 80s. Doug is a member of the La Follette political dynasty. They're like the Kennedys, except better looking, I've been told. He has a Bachelor of, Bachelor of Arts degree from Marietta College, a Master of Science in Chemistry from Stanford University, and a PhD in Organic Chemistry from Columbia University. Now, I haven't heard of those last two uh, tertiary education institutions, but I've been told that they're right up there with Trump University. Doug was known as an environmentalist before running for public office, was one of the organisers of the first Earth Day in 1970. He's the author of the book, The Survival Handbook, A Strategy for Saving Planet Earth. He has also served on the board of directors of Friends of the Earth and uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists and the Sierra Club and was a Fulbright Distinguished American Scholar in 2003 Finally, he is a very old friend of Sir J. David Markham. Doug, welcome to the show. It's great to be back with you and talk a little bit about politics, current, past, and future. Well, my first question is actually regarded to our mutual friend Markham. Uh, I want to know, does he make you refer to him as Sir or just my liege? No, I just call him Crazy David. <laughs> That's funny because that's what I call him as well. Does he? Do you think he knows? That's what we call him? I don't him? know. That's a question. <laughs> now, Doug, as somebody who's never been to Wisconsin, what's the first thing I should know about it? 
Well, it's a typical kind of Midwestern state. Uh, we've gone through the classical history of agriculture and then industry and then industry disappearing. And now we have both key, mostly insurance businesses and health, health business. We still have major agriculture. We're the major producer of, of, uh, of cheese and cranberries and maple syrup, plus lots of vegetables. We've got lots and lots of cows, more cows than people. Uh, it's a mixed state. The, the, the Germans immigrated, the Polish came here, the Irish came here, the Scandinavians came here. So we're a very mixed state. And we have uh, typical uh, Midwest weather. It's pretty cold in the winter and pretty hot in the summer. There, there's a good summary. Wow. Well, I, I look forward to visiting one of these days. Um, you'll have to roll out the red carpet for me when I come up. Uh, let's go you back. Bet. Let's go back to the beginning. You were born in 1940. What What are your earliest recollections? I guess my earliest was as a young child in Milwaukee, when I would, my mother and I would. I was maybe three or four years old. We would we would ride on a bus in Milwaukee, and uh, that's sort of my earliest memory. A bus in Milwaukee. Where's Milwaukee? Pardon me. Where is Milwaukee? Milwaukee is Wisconsin's largest city. It's famous for beer. Remember old Milwaukee beer and a lot of heavy industry there, insurance industries. Uh, it's on Lake Michigan. Uh, uh, Milwaukee is on Lake Michigan, so it has, it's a major port city as well. Well, I've, I've heard of both of those places, but my, my U.S. capital city geography is not terrific. What, uh, tell, us, tell me a little bit about your, your parents. What did they do? Well, my, my father was a chemical engineer, and he ended up uh, working for uh, the the war industry during the war when I was just a very small child, of course, 1942, 43, 44. And then he went to work for several different chemical companies in his life. Well, is that where your uh, the science gene comes from? I guess so, possibly that. And I had a very good high school chemistry teacher Mr. Thomas, I still remember him, and he, he sort of inspired me to be interested in chemistry as well. Oh, terrific. All right, now I'm trying to uh, add Ray into the call here because he has turned up. Hello. Oh, welcome, Ray. Thanks for joining us. Yes, you're welcome. I think we need to talk about the difference between East Coast and West Coast times, and when you set the dates, they're on the West Coast time, but we can do that later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Say hello to Mr. Secretary, where we've already started without you. Great. Well, I'm here in Midwest time, which is two hours different than California and one hour different than New York. <laughs> so good. I'm glad you can add to the mix of confusion. It is a pleasure to talk to you, sir. So uh, we were just talking. I'm going back, just getting a little bit of his background before we get into the hard stuff, Ray. Um mm -hmm. So your dad was a chemical engineer. What did you say? Did your mother work or was she just a, a mother? She was a college graduate and she taught just briefly. And then when I came along, she decided to be a, a homemaker, which was very typical back in those days. Yeah. I've seen Mad Men. Um, <laughs> what about siblings? Do you have siblings? I have one brother who's six years younger. Okay. And yourself, married? Nope, I've never been married. I've been, but by the time I got ready to think about that, with all the politics and environmental battles, uh, mm -hmm. I was too old to find anybody to put up with me. <laughs> 
I thought you were going to say you were too smart by that time. <laughs> uh, and what? And what about hobbies? What do you do when you're not being the Secretary of State? Well, I guess the outdoors is my hobby, or or, or politics. I'm a political junkie, obviously, and I follow politics. I've gotten kind of discouraged about that recently, by the way. But I like to hike and walk in the woods, and I used to go canoeing quite a bit, but I can't carry a canoe anymore. What's the uh, What's the hiking like in Wisconsin? Oh, we've got we've got wonderful the whole the whole northern half of Wisconsin is woods and lakes and rivers. Terrific! Yeah, when nice when my American wife and I go over there, we love to go hiking. We we love to go to Yosemite and Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon and Zion and places like that, Bryce Canyon. We should have to. We should make an effort to go hiking in Wisconsin one of these years. Yeah, Wisconsin doesn't have any of those famous big monuments. Most of those are in the West because that's where nature decided to to build the mountains and dig the canyons. Yeah. Here in Wisconsin, we mostly have just beautiful woods and lakes and streams, and then of course we have Lake Michigan on the east side and Lake Superior, one of the largest lakes in the world, on the north side. So a lot of people like to go sailing. And a very humble name for that lake as well. That's what I like about it. <laughs> Tell us one thing about organic chemistry that everyone should know, Doug. Oh, that's complicated. It's, uh, it's the chemistry of carbon, which means it's the chemistry of about everything in the world, whether it's, whether it's plastics or whether it's, whether it's drugs or, uh, or whether it's the human body. I mean, that's all made up of carbon chemistry. I like to think of myself as just a big bag of carbon. Do you think of yourself in those sort of reductionist terms, or is that just me? No, that's, that's pretty accurate. A big bag of carbon that's mostly water at the moment. I read, uh, I read a great book recently on the, on the history of, a, I think it was an oxygen atom, and just talking about where heavier elements come from and you know, the, the, their formation in stars and then the billions of years right across the universe they traveled before they landed on this planet and all the things that they were before they became me uh, over <laughs> four-odd billion years. Anyway, let's not get into that. So uh, let me ask you this. When did you realize that you were part of a political family, an American dynasty, if I can call you that? I guess the first funny story I can remember is when I was – uh, young in Milwaukee, and my father was working there, of course, uh, my father would tell a, a story that if he and his friends wanted to go to a, a, a fancy restaurant, they would always ask my dad to make reservations because he could ask for reservations for a party of eight for the La Follette's. And, of course, uh-huh. the, at that time, of course, it was very, very near the time when uh, Bob Jr. had been a senator and... Uh, and Bob uh, and and Philip was was governor at the time, so everybody mainly got all excited at the restaurants. And then, of course, then my dad and his friends showed up, and they weren't quite sure what to do about that because he wasn't a famous person. But you realized nice. something yeah. was afoot. <laughs> I guess yeah. He was. I mean, he like I are, are distantly related to the branch of the LaFollette family that that became very famous politically. As, as we'll probably talk about some later. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask, um, coming from, from that background, do you, um, do you feel like a, a sense of responsibility or entitlement? How, how do you treat that, um, the, you know, the people that came before you? How does that affect your outlook as far as the work that you want to do? Well, I certainly don't feel any entitlement. 
I feel sort right. of a, an honor that, that I, I share a name with, with some of the most famous uh, Wisconsin and national politicians who were famous for being very good people. Is, of course, in contrast to today, we have some very bad people in politics. And it was really in the, the famous progressive movement. And the LaFalle's were controversial because they were isolationists as well. And that caused some controversy back during the, the wars. But I, I feel proud that I have a name connected to uh, the, the famous family. And how did you end up in politics? How did you go from science to politics, Doug? Well, I guess when I was a, a grad student in Columbia in New York City, that's when the Vietnam War started. And I'll be honest with you and with, at that time even with myself, I said, where's Vietnam? You know, the American system of education is not very good about the rest of the world. So I had to go to the library and get a couple of books on Vietnam and I learned the history of Vietnam and the French and American involvement, and I decided that was a pretty stupid thing to do, to go to war over there. So I became a, an anti-war activist, along with a lot of other people around the University of Columbia in New York. And that first got me kind of politicalized a bit. And then shortly thereafter, we had the, the famous Earth Day in 1970. By that time, I was in Wisconsin. I was a professor teaching and uh, I've always cared about the environment. And so mm -hmm. that, that led me to think about what we could do to improve the environment. And following the lead of Senator Gaylord Nelson, who was the famous Wisconsin senator who came up with the idea of Earth Day, uh, and he was a senator, and he was trying to pass good laws. And he inspired me to think about the fact that a, a career in public service would be a way to do something about environmental issues as well as as war war and peace issues. So I decided to to enter the fray and I ran for office the first time. Nice. Speaking, you'll probably cover this already, and I do apologize. But speaking of public service, could you tell us a little bit about Robert Fighting Bob La Follette? How is he related to you? Well, that's a question I didn't know the answer to until I ran for office, and then people started asking right. me and sometimes even criticizing me for not being a real LaFollette, quote-unquote. So a professor friend of mine did, did a genealogical research and discovered the, the best way to explain it quickly is I'm a shirt-tail cousin, if you've heard that term. <laughs> if you want to explain it technically, my great-great-grandfather and Fighting Bob's father were brothers, which makes me... Uh -huh been like a first cousin twice removed or something like that. <laughs> a bit like um, Teddy Roosevelt and FDR, like distantly sort of cousin-y related somehow. I think so. Yeah. Now, a cool last name. Now, I, I read up a little bit about him, and, he, and it's funny, he's come up in a couple of books I've been reading as I uh, was preparing for our Cold War series over the last six months. As I understand it, he was a member of the U.S., House of Representatives, Governor of Wisconsin, U.S. Senator from Wisconsin from 1906 to 1925, and a Republican, but he founded the Progressive Party, or Mark II, I think, maybe, of the Progressive Party. Do you, uh, and I think he ran for president under the uh, banner of the Progressive Party in 19, when he, 1924 and actually did quite well. Do you, do you know much about the Progressive Party and what they stood for? Well, the as, as I have heard it, and probably read less than you have, so you may be more of an expert than I, 
uh, Bob Lafala was uh, was frustrated. Uh, as a young man, he he wanted to get into politics, and he he was facing the the good old boys Folkfield rooms. Back then, we didn't have primary elections. We had uh, a bunch of good old boys, quote unquote, who got together and decided who 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 they were going to support and who was going to be elected. And uh, he didn't have uh, favorable relations with them, apparently. Uh, he did run for U.S. Congress and was able to win, but then, he, but then they came back and defeated him because they didn't like his politics. So he was, he was frustrated with that, and that's when he decided that he would be a maverick within the Republican Party, and then eventually uh, d- decided, along with other people around the country, there were several several other politicians at the same time, the names of which I can't remember, quite honestly, uh, in some of the Western states who were also progressives. And they they formed this progressive party, and that, and he did run for president. The progressive party, there was a big uh, disagreement between La Folla and Roosevelt and, and uh, the Democratic Party and the progressive party. And then uh, later on, his... His son, Bob Jr., or Young Bob, as he's often called, he actually ran and was elected as a progressive, I think, three times. And then he did finally change back to be a Republican in his last uh, effort to be elected. And um, that was the year he was defeated by Joe McCarthy, which was one of the sad stories in Wisconsin politics. So the progressive ticket was around. The Democratic Party didn't really exist until fairly recently, probably the 19, I want to say 50s, 60s, when a group of people who were sort of progressive decided it was time to have a Democratic Party in Wisconsin. Right. Uh, you, you, we don't tend to think of Republicans and progressives as being uh, interchangeable these days. Well, you know, the, the Republican Party has gone through a lot of changes from the party of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and, and, and the party of, 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 of Teddy Roosevelt to the party of Donald Trump. <laughs> and uh, one would have to say there's been quite a lot of changes in their philosophy. Most recently, I think we have to think of it as the party of, of pretty much uh, big business and, and big money. And, of course, the Democrats have followed suit, and they've become the party of, of a little more intellectual but still big money. Right. Well, I, speaking, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, right. I just wanted to follow up on that because one of the questions I had was about whether or not you think that the major parties have moved to the right over the last 20 years. It sounds like you do. And, and what do you think is driving that? Well, the, the idea of move to the right is, is interesting. If we had many hours and if I knew enough, we could talk about it. But I would say there's been a, a movement back and forth, certainly. Many years ago, in the, in the, say in the 1920s and 30s, the, the parties were pretty much to the right. I mean, they supported big business and, uh, and the, 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 the economic structures that led to, to the Great Depression. And then, and then, and then uh, Roosevelt came along with, the, with his more progressive politics. And then the, they might say that the party then kind of went to, more to the left for a while, with, with Roosevelt, and then, and then the Democrats sort of maintained a little more left position, but still always friendly with big business. That's always been the history. Mm-hmm. Whether they want to talk about the, the 
the red scares that you mentioned the interest in. You know, there was the, the first red scare was way back in the 20s uh, when labor unions started saying, wait a minute, you can't make workers work, you know, all hours with no pay and no benefits. And, and we had a kind of a workers' revolution against, uh, and that led to big business being frightened. And they used uh, kind of a, a red scare at that time to try to suppress suppress labor and workers. And so there's always been this shifting back and forth. I think from my short experiences, the say last 30 years or so, the Democratic Party of the 1960s and 70s was a fairly liberal party. It was pro-environment, pro-women's rights, uh, and uh, a number of issues. They believed in democracy and people being able to vote and so forth. But they begin to become more corporate because of the need for money. As elections became more and more expensive and the, and the Republican Party started spending tremendous amounts of money, the Democrats had to go to Wall Street, quote-unquote, as well, to get the money, and therefore they, they became more corporate and more conservative. And then, of course, uh, Bill Clinton took them to the right quite a bit with his, mm-hmm. with his sort of new Democratic ideas and ideas of welfare reform, which has come up recently as a criticism of Hillary, as you may have read, because that welfare reform was not very pro, pro-poor, if you will. So there's been these shifts back and forth. The Republicans have been pretty consistent as being conservative, big business, corporate, but then recently they've had this, this interaction with the, the, uh, the groups that have these one-issue agendas, like anti-abortion and anti-gay people and anti-black people and so forth. That's why the Democratic Party had a great crisis when the people in the South who have been Democrats for years became Republicans because of civil rights. And the, they, and the Democrats supported civil rights, and Lyndon Johnson was famous for that. And uh, he was a Southerner, actually, but he was a Southerner that had some integrity but a lot of the uh, Southerners who had been Democrat became Republican because of, of the support of the Democrats of civil rights. So it goes back and forth. It's a complicated history. There's lots of books people can read. Right. Yeah, I, I never thought of it in that terms before. The Democrats literally had to go where the money was at to keep competing with the Republicans because, like you said, they were always a little closer to big business, so they have to do what they need to do to survive. But something you just said uh, – I just can't help but ask this question. If the Republicans of today are going to keep turning away certain groups because of different beliefs, I mean, how can the Republicans possibly see a future for themselves if they're going to turn away gays, if they're going to turn away minorities, if they're going to turn any, away anyone that doesn't fit their view? I just I just don't see how these very intelligent, successful, rich people can possibly make a go out of continuing to whittle away who they're willing to allow in their tent. Yeah, well, they've 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 sort of been hoisted on their own petard, if you will, because uh, they were kind of doing quite well, uh, getting what they wanted, you know, big tax breaks and, and deregulation uh, by courting some of these groups. There's a long story behind that, if I, if I could tell the whole story. But basically, after Goldwater was defeated so dr- dramatically these wealthy Republicans got nervous because that was the time of the women's rights movement, environmental movement, civil rights, anti-war, all that going on in the, in the 70s. 
So they began to organize, and people like the Koch brothers and their friends dedicated millions of dollars to a program to, to try to take back the government. And they set up a school to t- teach young Republicans. They set up the Fox Network and Rush Limbaugh and the talk radio. They, uh, they uh, set up these think tanks like the Heritage Foundation and the Heartland, Heartland Institute that were right-wing think tanks that were not peer-reviewed, of course, and put out all kinds of, of fake propaganda, whether it was about climate change or anything else. But all of that, they still knew one thing, that they couldn't get voters to vote for them if they said, I want my taxes cut and I want my regulations eliminated. So they needed some way to get voters. And to get voters, or to what they called the ground troops, they appealed to the Christian right on abortion issues and gay rights issues. Mm-hmm. They, they appealed to the, uh, the, uh, the, the Farm Bureau uh, Agricultural Conservative Organizations. And, and they appeared to, uh, appealed to the, the National Rifle Association on the, the big issue of guns, guns, guns. So by doing that, they were able to get elected. And they basically took over the country. In the last 20 years, they've gotten what they wanted. The taxes were cut and, dere- and deregulation. But they didn't do a whole lot for the, some of these groups that they had courted. And so we had this sort of backlash against them with the Tea Party and with very conservative Republicans running against the more, the more business Republicans in primaries and defeating them sometimes. This is over the last 10, 12 years, as you probably know. So the Republicans now are sort of stuck because they've, they've sort of created this, this monster. And now, as you know, they probably can't win presidential elections at the moment because they've turned off so, so, many, so many of the voters. And some of the key voting constituencies, minorities particularly, are becoming uh, more prevalent, higher percentage of, of them within the voting uh, population. So you don't think Trump has much of a chance of getting the support he needs when it comes to November? No, I mean, there's, there's no way Trump or probably any other Republican can win the presidency at the moment. Given the way this is set up, and that leads to this whole issue of the, of the way we elect presidents with the uh, voter by state by state, and we have the situation where a number of times the president is not even the popular president uh, candidate, uh, he does, he or she doesn't get the most votes. But because of the electoral college and the way it's structured, you you have to win certain states, and mm-hmm. half of the not half the states, twenty uh, percent vote blue, twenty percent vote red. You can't change that. You know, Wyoming is going to be Republican no matter what, and probably New York is going to be Democrat no matter what. But then you've got just a few states. Ohio, North Carolina, Florida, New Mexico, maybe Colorado, maybe Wisconsin, where the election is decided by the Electoral College. It's a bad system, I think. But uh, because of that and the way it's structured, the Republicans have a difficult time winning. Now, what's going to happen is a movement that started two days ago by some of the Republican delegates to the Cleveland Convention coming up in about three weeks to dump Trump, and we'll see what happens. 
I thought you were going to mention uh, when you said what happened a couple of days ago was uh, Bernie Sanders' speech and him urging his supporters to get, infol- get involved in uh, public life, run for office. Uh, I-, I thought that was an interesting move. What, what are your What's your take on Bernie Sanders? Well, I obviously like his politics. Uh, he made a couple of mistakes early on uh, in his effort. He didn't think people would take him seriously. So because of that, he didn't organize quickly, and therefore he didn't get ready for a number of the southern states, South Carolina, mm-hmm. Georgia, Alabama, I don't remember all of them, and that's where Hillary got a big lead on him. And so if he would have taken himself seriously a year and a half ago, he might be the nominee, because once he got going, he caught on, and he was doing pretty well, so who knows. But now uh, the question is, He's made a commitment to help defeat Mr. Trump, and uh, I think that uh, that's what's going to happen. Given his age and situations, I don't think he's got much in the future except U.S. Senate. And if the Democrats win the Senate, and there's a slight chance of that, then he will could become the chairman of an important committee, and he can continue to raise some of the issues that he's raised in his campaign. How much President Clinton, Hillary Clinton, will give him uh, a chance to to air his beliefs and how much she would support his beliefs will be interesting to see. I think the the best solution, the best outcome from my point of view uh, next year would be to have Hillary become president, even though she's not my favorite because of a few issues, and to have the Democrats win the Senate. There's no way the Democrats can win the House because of gerrymandering. The Republicans have gerrymandered the House seats in such a way that even though the Democrats get millions more votes, the the Republicans win the congressional seats in a number of states, including Wisconsin and and Ohio and some other ones. So that's what's probably going to happen. All right, well, but before we lose you, sir, we should get back and actually talk about the Red Scare and the Cold War, which was our reason for inviting you on, I <laughs> guess, originally. Uh, you mentioned Joe McCarthy before. We've mentioned him a little bit on the show. We're going to be talking about him a lot more as we go. But um, tell me what you see the lessons of the McCarthy era are for the United States and the political arena. Well, I'm not a a political historian, and I'm sure you can find someone who is to have on one of your shows to actually go into some detail. I I did a little quick research just so I wouldn't be totally ignorant, and I did learn, you know, that that, that there was a so-called first Red Scare, it's called, back in the 1920s, which, as I mentioned earlier, was mostly sort of a, a, a reaction to the, the Bolshevik Revolution in, in Russia, and then the, the rise of, of labor, working people saying, you know, we want to be treated better. And, of course, the, the business people reacted against that. And if they, could, uh, if they could accuse these workers of being some sort of horrible communist-type people, that was a way to, to be more successful. Then the, the so-called Second Red Scare, the one that McCarthy got involved in, was, uh, was more of a reaction to the Cold War situation where we, we were worried about the Soviet Union. And so because of that, uh, after the Second World War, when 
different corporate interests were interested in, in maintaining their control of parts of the world, that they were not happy with, uh, with some of the, 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 the liberal thinking that was going on at the time. And again, one has to be somewhat straightforward to say in the Soviet Union also had some of their agenda. Uh, after the Second World War, they were very careful to, 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 to jump into to, to Poland and East Germany and, and some of the other parts of the what became the Soviet Union, and which now it is no longer since that broke up, and now we have Russia and Poland, and these places now are independent. So during that whole period, uh, it, it was beneficial to the powers that be or the powers that wanted to continue to be to have a boogeyman. And the boogeyman, of course, was communism. And Joe McCarthy took advantage of that. I tried to do some research to answer uh, your question as to what was McCarthy's feeling about communism early on. And I know I don't know, and I couldn't find much. His history is that he he decided he wanted to be a politician up in the in the Appleton part of Wisconsin, and he ran for judge. And the story is he ran a very dirty campaign and defeated someone and became a judge. And then and then from there on, he, he moved on. He was defeated one time in a primary for U.S. Senate in a Republican primary. And I don't know if there was any talk of communism. In my opinion, and you need to get a scholar to answer this, he was basically using communism as, a, as an effective tool to, to promote himself. And given the situation in the world, uh, it was convenient for him and it was effective because people were people could be convinced to be afraid of the Soviet Union and, and the evil communism. I think we should have been we should have been uh, watchful of the Soviet Union and we should have been careful to, to have good foreign policy. But I think the whole communist scare was probably a very bad thing for this country, in my opinion because it took us right on up through the Vietnam War. I mean, the Vietnam War was the last, the last breath of anti-communism, I think. Uh, and that was a disastrous war, not only for us, but for Vietnam. I mean, about 40,000 Americans had to be sacrificed because we were still fighting communism in, in Vietnam. So if we could redo history, I think we'd be better off not to have gone through that particular period. We could have been watchful of the Soviet Union, we could, we could have competed with them without having to have that, that particular situation. But McCarthy was very effective at taking advantage of it. I, there, there is this, um, uh, what's known as the Wisconsin School of uh, Revisionist American Foreign Policy, uh, started by a guy called William Appleman Williams. Are you familiar at all with uh, him or them? I am now because after I got your email, I went online and I, I, I studied about William Appleton and, and his history and his education. And, and he's, he's moved to Oregon where he died and his, his tenure in Wisconsin as a professor. Yeah, he, he sort of represents, I think, the school of thought that I was just exposing, exposing myself. Yeah. That, that we probably got carried away with our imperial foreign policy. And we might have been better off to be a, a little less, a little less aggressive in the world in terms of our foreign policy, 
he would have been critical of big corporate takeovers and and the CIA assassinating leaders around the world and things like that. So uh, mostly what I know about him, I just read recently. Okay, I was just wondering, I mean, both McCarthy and Williams coming out of Wisconsin, I was really interested to see if there was uh, any um, lingering effects, how well-known they are in Wisconsin, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, and as you've spent large part of your life in public service. I was wondering if that, uh, you know, if you'd come across it or if they were uh, entities that still existed there in spirit. But it sounds well, like not. I would say uh, in the case of, uh, of William Appleman, uh, no. I don't, I've never heard his name mentioned in all the politics I pursued. I would guess if you went to a university and talked to, to history professors, you, you, you would get some... some uh, some understanding or some response. As far as McCarthy, yes. McCarthy is still, is still a boogeyman. People can still talk about the bad days of McCarthy and how horrible that was, at least within the Democratic Party. There may be some Republicans who look back fondly, but I've never heard that, actually. <laughs> and his name has gone on. I mean, if we still hear the, the terms McCarthyist or McCarthyism used today to talk about uh, fear mongering about Muslims, or uh, you know, you name it, really, whoever the boogeyman is of the day. It's this whole idea of creating. No, it's worse fear than I, and terror. I, mean, I see Donald Trump to be, in many ways, in the same spirit as McCarthy. I, I don't know what Trump really believes, as I don't know what mm. McCarthy really believed. You know, as I said a little bit ago, but certainly Trump is using. His, his uh, xenophobia, which is a polite word for his hate-mongering, he's using that xenophobia very effectively to promote himself among certain uh, groups of voters, and he's been successful. And so I find it worrisome. I don't think the country will fall for it the way they did for McCarthy. I mean, I mean the country fell for McCarthy. Because that, I think, as I said earlier, because of the, of, the, of the international Cold War situation, the Soviet Union, da-da-da, I don't mm-hmm. think Trump has that uh, situation in his favor. I think Americans are nervous. They, they, they don't like the economic situation where they've lost, they've lost the middle class. They can't afford to pay their college loans. They can't afford to, to live on a decent salary anymore with minimum wages at $9 or whatever an hour. So there is a, a mood out there that can be exploited, but I don't think it will result in his success. We'll see. To some extent, Bernie Sanders benefited from that same concern, but in, in a, what I'd call a more positive uh, approach. But how did Trump happen? I mean, from again, from a purely outsider's view on the other side of the world, we're looking at the fact that he's uh, a candidate for president and going, what the hell? Yeah, what the hell is right? Well, again, <laughs> his history is something that many people don't know about, maybe particularly in Australia, because there's no reason why they should. All they know about him is, is maybe, maybe Trump Towers and a golf course. Or, or maybe that TV show that he had. But he, he has had an interest in politics for many years as a, a rich guy who played politics on both sides, Democrat and Republican. He liked to be friends with important people like President Clinton and so forth. And, 
the, the different the different mayors of New York. He he toyed with the idea of running for president several years ago, and then he decided not to. So he's always had it on his agenda. Uh, he's got a giant ego, and how else can you uh, take advantage of of your ego than being the president of the United States? So 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 this time he decided to do it. He's not told me why. I have never, never talked to the man, but uh, but he decided to do it, and just as 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 luck will have it, it worked. Given the mood of the country, given the right. many Republican candidates, and given the structure of the primary system, uh, and given the news media who who uh, followed him around like puppy dogs and gave him a tremendous amount of coverage, uh, it worked, surprisingly. I would not have guessed it, although I didn't predict it pretty early. Uh, some people thought he would fail, but after about halfway through, I began to see that he was going to make it. He was... Um, well, I, sorry, Ray, yeah. go. No, I was just going to say, well, I hope you're absolutely right that the American people... Uh, Turn him away this November, and I'm and I'm and I'm also hopeful that because of someone like him, I'm hoping I hope he's such a bad candidate that the American public will actually go. You know, we need to I don't know pull back, calm down, wise up, and try to bring some more better character of people forward. So not only I think a lot of the people are thinking like this that he does lose, but maybe he's going to be a good example for us of you know what could have been. And we'll do a better job in the future. Between yeah, him and what the NRA get away with every time there's a shooting, you just hoping at some point there's some event that just helps us to wake up. And hopefully that's all he'll be remembered for. Yeah, well, I won't hope so. Although, again, he is just a, a current uh, flash in the pan, if you know that expression. Mm -hmm. We still yes. have the, the, the crisis of American democracy that I described before, where the Koch brothers and their friends have taken over. And given the campaign finance situation, given the Supreme Court rulings that unlimited money can be donated, and, and given the gerrymandering of the districts, uh, not only in states, but at the national level for Congress, uh, the Koch brothers, uh, I'm using them symbolically, they and their, their friends have taken over the country. And can we get it back again? I don't know. With the voter ID laws and the gerrymandering and the big money, mm pessimistic. Donald Trump will go away, and I think he will definitely lose. In fact, they may throw him out at Cleveland. They're talking about throwing him out at Cleveland. Who they would replace him with is still not clear. But behind the Trump phenomenon is the fact that American democracy is in very sad shape. Well, I guess that's kind of the point, is whether or not Trump is a flash-in-the-pan phenomenon or if he is merely a symptom of much deeper underlying issues. And it's what he represents, not who he is, that is the concern about the fact that he is now the Republican nominee. Well, the interesting thing is that, that uh, despite what I just described as the, as the hijacking of American democracy by, by the very rich people and their friends, uh, they were not happy about Trump. He, he sort of fooled them. They would have much preferred uh, Governor Bush of Florida, or uh, one of one of those more mainstream, pro Wall Street, pro corporate people. That's who they wanted, so they could keep on doing what they do. And Trump came along and upset their apple cart. 
and they're not happy about it, and, and they've spent millions trying to stop him, and they're still going to be spending more millions trying to, to organize this this new dump Trump movement that just started a couple of days ago. So, so he, he definitely uh, sort, of, sort of whizzed by their radar, and they're not happy either. Hmm. All right. Well, um, look, we, I know that you um, need to go. Um, we'll let you head off. But any, any final thoughts on um, American politics before we let you go? You don't sound very optimistic at the moment, Doug. Well, I think I've described pretty much my, my feelings and, and the, my experiences in the last 40 years. I, mean, I, live, I lived through this takeover. I first got involved in the 70s when things looked pretty good, mm. and we were passing good environmental laws. I mean, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and these environmental laws that were passed in the 70s, the Republicans in the House Representative have voted to repeal them several times. Mm. It hasn't happened because President Obama would not sign them, and they couldn't get them through the Senate. But you know, they would like to, to repeal many of the environmental laws as well as the right to vote and, and, and the, the right of a woman to have health care. You know, and they're trying to do these things. So the, the, the takeover of the government that I've described over the last 30 years is very discouraging. And how we're going to rectify that is, is a, a tough question. Mm. Well, Mr. Secretary, we want to thank you for your time, uh, for coming on, and for doing some research too. I didn't expect you to do any research. I just wanted you to talk off the cuff. But you went over and beyond, and I guess that's why you've been Secretary of State since 1974, nearly, in, <laughs> more or less. Because you go, you go over and beyond the bounds of duty. Thank you, sir. Well, it's good to hear your voice again. I, I like your accent, as usual. And the next time you get to the States, maybe you can pass through Wisconsin I, I've been to your your your, uh, your grand 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 land down under one time in my life, and, and very much enjoyed some of the environmental places I was able to visit, uh, including uh, seeing Tasmania and so forth. Uh, maybe I'll get there again. It's the kind of place that you need months and months to really experience, <laughs> as you well know. Well, I hope uh, you get down here to see the Great Barrier Reef before our mining interests and our government completely destroy it. Yeah, I, 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 like I said, I'm a political junkie. I read the news, and your government and the attitudes going on there, the, the coal industry and a variety of things, don't look so good for you folks either. No, no, it's uh, very, very upsetting, and uh, they're, they're a pack of assholes, as we would call I think that's the, <laughs> the political term that we have down here, Doug. I'm not sure if you have that where you come from, but just a complete pack of dirty assholes, I think. Both, both parties, <laughs> both major parties here. Well, you keep fighting the battles there, and I'll do it here, and we'll talk whenever we need to. All right. Thank you, sir. Have a good afternoon. Very good. Thank you very much, both of you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow, what a guy. Okay, we're out, Doug. Thank you so much. Oh, no, he's gone. He might be gone, gone. (laughs) Don't say that. (laughs) No, I'm just saying gone, you know. Oh, gone you didn't mean like yeah. dead. You meant like no, okay. no, 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 no. And I apologize dude. for jumping in. I, I am terribly sorry. No disrespect intended. 
What do you mean? You didn't get the time right. Like, I even sent you a calendar invite. I sent you emails with all but of the But it's all on West Coast. All of the So ti- I thought it was going to be at 6.45 Eastern Standard Time because it was 3.45. I, I can't. Anyway, so. I sent you an email with what time it was in Wisconsin. Doug knew what time it was. <laughs> How did a 76-year-old <laughs> Secretary of State know yeah. what time it was and you didn't? Um, sure, I could tell you something, but it'd be a lie. I just sincerely apologize. Well, <laughs> anything you want to talk about before we go? Anything that you you, you picked up, you learnt? Interesting. Yeah, I thought just- his views on on you know both parties moving sort of to be more big business, to, to hear that from somebody who is part of the political establishment and has been since, you know, the early 70s, I think is interesting. Yeah, I just, yeah, because you think about it, because when Teddy Roosevelt comes along, he starts busting up trusts and stuff like that. So, yes, they would have to move to the left or be more progressive in order to do that. So, yeah, so there was that shift in the left. And, and as I think you pointed out yeah then they gradually started going to the right and the democrats have got to go where the money's got it is to compete with republicans or they're going to lose all the time so they have to sacrifice certain or some of them have to sacrifice certain principles and do what the republicans do in order to stay viable and it's unfortunate for the 99 percent. but like he said i mean he doesn't see a way out and if he doesn't see a way out i don't know but that doesn't mean you stop fighting the good fight I think it, you know, this gets back to the quote I read from Einstein a couple of shows ago about how mm-hmm. capital affects the political process. And uh, the cost of elections in the United States, is, I think, is interesting. You know, yeah. we know that I think in the la- this presidential cycle, they're probably going to spend over a billion dollars mm-hmm. um, on camp- election campaigns. Right. I think in the now, last- why would you spend a billion dollars if you were just doing it, doing it to help lead the country? Well, they're not spending their own money. Obviously, they're raising yeah. money. But the the fact that Still. it costs that much money, say five hundred right. million uh, per party, the major parties um, to Stagnant. to run for president. I I can't help but think that that at some point has been deliberately engineered. That it mm-hmm. that it you know takes a year and a half and costs five hundred million dollars in order That's to insane. run for president. I am not sure. It's a weeding out <clears throat> process. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for Americans um, who who don't follow global politics, you might be interested to know that um, in Australia, our federal elections, where we elect the uh, we don't elect a prime minister like you elect a president we elect a party and the leader of that party becomes the prime minister but our federal elections we normally have about six weeks notice before an election right the um they they have to be run somewhere between every three and four years The, the 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 governing party or the party is currently in power gets to Pick the election date. We don't have it at the same time every four years like you do. <clears throat> they just right. go, we're going to have an election. <clears throat> they're going to call the election. They usually try and time it for when they think they're doing well in the polls and uh, sure. they've got their ducks lined up. But we, we typically uh, – this one we've had a little bit more because there was a – the Prime Minister couldn't get a bill passed and so he said, fuck it, we're going to have an election in two months. 
But normally we have about six weeks. So they go, yeah, okay, we're going to have an election in six weeks, federal election, and that's it. So there's six weeks of yeah. campaigning, and boom, it's done. Not you can't, 18 months. <laughs> right, and you can't spend, hopefully, a billion dollars in six months, so you're not spending oh. as much. And <clears throat> if, if I could... I mean, yeah, that's that's the way. Just hurry up and do it. Get it over with. And because it gets so boring. Oh my god! After two two months, it gets so boring. I want to go back to something you said a, a couple of minutes ago about Bernie Sanders and his speech calling on the young people. Because the news is over here has done a semi decent job of really focusing on the fact that he has energized a lot of young people. When I mean young people, I mean like eighteen year olds, that kind of thing. So hopefully, he has inspired a generation of people to. Stay co- stay cognizant of what's going on in the world. You know, watch the international news every once in a while. Consider running for some kind of office or creating charities or whatever, and and just doing something to try to change the turd of uh, the tide that that is. So hopefully he has inspired. No, I think, so th- I, think that turd, came out wrong. Yeah, I think turd was right. The turd, change the turd. The, the turd that is now American politics. No, but um, no, but hopefully he has he's inspired a generation, and I don't see things changing in my lifetime. But maybe this this generation that's growing up, maybe it's hopefully the beginning of something. Yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting, uh, Bernie going out there, and I think he got eleven thousand people to volunteer on his website uh, a couple of days ago oh. to say they want to play a part in the political process, either run for office themselves or uh, support yeah. other Sanders uh, San- Sandersonians right. uh, to run for public office. I think. Yeah, as Doug said, uh, Bernie is getting on. He probably doesn't have another presidential right. election I in him, so. but yeah. uh, I think he may have started a bit of a revolution, which uh, might continue in his name uh, you know, over the next ten years. We'll see. Yeah, I was just going to say maybe he's started the Church of Bernie, but um, eleven thousand people volunteering to help is a hell of a lot more than giving to the Red Cross, especially since they don't know where in the hell one hundred twenty-four million dollars has gone when it should have gone to Haiti. And and that's that's all I wanted to say about that. You're back on that, right? You, you talked about I, that. The I'm other day. pissed. You're back on I am that, pissed. Well, my brother-in-law, who's a priest, went to Haiti after it happened and tried to help out and organize things, and he, just the devastation that he described, just. It just overwhelmed me, and and here's you know the Red Cross can't tell you what they've done with a lot of the money. Just you're like, damn! It just it just shakes you to your core as far as who you can put your faith in anymore. Let's go back a step. You have a brother-in-law who's a priest. Yes, he's a Catholic priest. <laughs> so I have to behave myself at Christmas and on certain parties and family this is get-togethers. One of Heather's brothers. Heather's, Heather's brother. Yeah, one of the twins. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. So. Wow. <laughs> that didn't come up when we were in Vegas. No, I don't remember no, Anne mentioning that she had a son who was a priest. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know why, but uh, yeah, they're very, very proud of him, and you know, he's trying to do it good. But obviously, he is in a very different place than I am, and then I respect that. But uh, you just, out of respect, you just kind of bite your tongue and talk behind his back like an immature five-year-old. <laughs> out of respect. <laughs> We've we've uh, at Sunday Assembly in Brisbane today. Our guest speaker is actually an ex-Catholic priest who uh, got kicked out a couple of years ago because he said, "You know what? I'm going to invite gays to come in, and you know if they want to get up and talk, and if they want, you know, we will celebrate their relationships." 
and <laughs> they kicked him out. <laughs> Jeez Louise. So he stood up one day. I was there. I, I, I went down to film it. He stood up with his entire congregation on his last day and his entire oh, congregation walked out with him, walked down the street to a new building and reestablished themselves. They call themselves the Church of St. Mary's in Exile. But nice. um, he's coming along to Sunday Assembly to talk about how the fact that, uh, you know, he's in his 70s too. He doesn't believe in... Uh, the Gospels, he doesn't believe in Jesus, doesn't believe in God, and hasn't right. since he was in his 40s. But he just played the game for 30 years because he didn't know what else to do, and then they finally, yeah. you know. Anyway, I mean, this just, has got nothing to do with the Cold War, but still. Yeah, just just be nice to people, love people. If their sexual orientation is different years, it probably is not going to affect you. Fuck off, leave them alone, and learn to get along. Yes. And that had absolutely nothing to do with the Cold War. <laughs> Let Ray and I do in the privacy of our own Vegas hotel rooms. That's right. Um, now, getting back to some of the stuff that Doug was talking about, though, yeah. you know, I, um, I, I'm really interested in this move to the right and how much it's been engineered and how much of it is just uh, market forces. Yeah. But it, it is interesting to think that they have to raise all of this money to run for well, any seats, not just the presidential campaigns, but any right. any seat, you need increasing amounts of money. Mm-hmm. And we know this is the way the NRA continues to, to get away with what they get away with because they have a lot of money and they're able to say to candidates, any, any political candidate who wants to speak out against the NRA, the NRA mm. just comes along and says, well, we're going to throw a uh, million yeah. dollars at your political competitor and exactly. You, we'll, we'll finish your career. Yeah, you could be your your political competitor could be a black Jew homosexual, but if you talk bad about guns, they're going to give right. that person a whole bunch of money to defeat your ass. And I don't think I tr- cuz I don't care about guns. I don't whatever about guns. I'm I'm kind of whatever, but I don't think I truly appreciate their power and their influence uh financially and politically, but Obviously, every time there's a shooting in this country it happens every obviously on a regular basis. More guns are bought, and it's it's almost like it's just great for sales for them. So they get more people on their side. And again, it's just about fear. It's just like with the Cold War. It's just like with nine eleven. People don't make the best decisions when they're absolutely afraid and terrified and thinking of their children. And I don't know. It's when people say my thoughts and prayers are with you. <sighs> It doesn't fix the problem at all, and it's time to try something else. Just try, like, like like FDR, we said a couple of episodes ago, FDR would try something. If it worked, great. Fuck it, move on and try something else. But at least try something before you say this is not going to work. Well, as as people may or may not know, depending on which television shows you watch, and I'm talking to Americans here again, Australia mm-hmm. used to have fairly regular mass shootings. We kind of had one a year give or take, in the late 70s, 80s, 90s. And then in 1996, we had one in Tasmania that was quite bad. I think it was 39 people killed by Mm. a young white male uh, who was a little bit uh, mentally deficient. Sure. Using an AR-15, by the way. And our Prime Minister at the time, newly elected Prime Minister John Howard, who came from the conservative side of politics, just said, that's it, we're getting rid of semi-automatic weapons. And um, he did a, what was called a buyback of weapons, uh, mm-hmm. ma- massively overhauled our gun ownership laws, got bipartisan support. Um, yeah. And in the last 20 years, do you know how many mass shootings we've had in Australia? No, how many? 
None. Not a single oh. mass shooting since Shit. that gun buyback in 1996. Not a single That's one. Insane. America's having, on average, like one a day. Uh, we haven't had a yeah. single one in 20 years. And, and so when Americans say, well, getting guns off the streets you know, wouldn't do anything. Well, I mean, that, that hasn't been the experience of other places right. in the world. And our cultures and are very similar. We're not yeah, Sweden, yeah. you know, we're not Finland. I mean, I see a lot of comparisons between America and those sorts of countries. Um, you know, I think we have probably more in common. Australia's culture and, the United, and America's culture is pretty much as close as you can get, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. We watch the same movies, we watch the same TV shows, we listen to the same music, we speak the same language, we have the same yeah. skin colour mostly. Uh, we're probably a little bit more white than your population. Uh, our mm-hmm. black population isn't as big. We don't have you know, as many Latins and that kind of right. stuff, Latin Americans, Puerto Ricans. But, um, you know, I, I think... Culturally, we, we are as close as you can get. And when we took guns out of our society, not all guns, you can still have a shotgun with a license or a rifle with a license if you have, if you can justify a need for it. If you're a farmer or if you're in security, you can have a handgun and those sorts of things, or a cop, obviously. But mm-hmm. it's, it's extremely limited, extremely limited access to guns. Right. Um, not a single mass shooting. Now, we still have shootings. Uh, yeah. You still read in the paper here that people get shot from time to time, usually gang-related, usually, you know. Um, right, which is a different category altogether in my in my mind. Well, I mean, if you look at the number of gun deaths per capita per year in the United States, a lot of them are suicides and a lot of them are, um, I think, gang-related. But mm-hmm. uh, I think it's something about just the 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 psychological and emotional fear in a society that mass shootings every time you have a mass shooting like Orlando where for people listening in the future we're recording this just after the a uh, few days after the Orlando uh, massacre yeah. in what are we June 2016 at a, right a, a nightclub in Orlando Florida where I think 49 people were killed mm-hmm. another 50 or so uh, wounded um you know, the, you look at what happens across the United States with the media uh, after one of these things. It goes on for a couple of weeks. Saturation, right. as far as I could tell from over here, uh, just saturation, talking about it, analysing it. Would that be uh, a, a fair um, Yeah, assessment? absolutely. Yeah. So just that happening in your culture, um, we don't get that. That that kind of thing doesn't happen here. We're, we're all, you know, our... our Media airwaves are still talking about, I don't know, what fucking the Prime Minister had to say about the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, we don't have that kind right, of... Right, something else. Yeah, a news cycle that just goes on and on and on. I and mean, on. Got, think about what that does to the psyche of a nation when your media is constantly talking about mass murders happening yeah. in uh, this state or that state. Yeah. yeah, you get numb, but also I think it's going to have a, a devastating effect on the uh, emotional health of of a nation. So I think you know, trying to cut down on mass killings like this, mass murders, isn't just about reducing the death toll. It's about reducing this undercurrent of fear in the culture, fear and uh, terror 
mm-hmm. that permeates your society and the psychological and emotional impact that has on on kids and, and on adults, on all of us. Yeah. The, the one thing that really gets me a couple of points is, uh, I, I think I might've mentioned this to you, but a couple of years ago, I mean, I live in the middle of nowhere. We have one red light and we have more cows than people. I live in the middle of nowhere. And we had a girl who was abducted and killed a couple of years ago. But the thing was, it was a neighbor. It was a local. It was someone who I could drive to his house in six minutes, which obviously freaks me out. But the point is when there's something like this that happens in America, it's not ISIS. It's not Al Qaeda. It's one of our own. So when born here, raised here, shooting people up. And that's, I don't know, that that always hits me harder. I mean, I could semi-respect, you know, if it was someone from the outside, I hate you, so I'm coming over there to kill you. That, to me, makes sense. But it's our own people doing it. And so that's another part of the problem that has to be focused on. But I've always thought that you would have to have a super popular conservative Republican president office. You get a mass shooting, and then this person goes, you know what? We have to do something because someone like the NRA or whatever would go, oh, if he says we need to do something about it, then we need to do something about it. But when you have shootings and there's a Democrat in the White House, he or she is not going to have any chance to do to do anything because they'll just say, oh, you're just using this to – to further your agenda to get to take our guns away. It's like you almost need the right person in the right place, as, as crazy as it sounds, at the right time in order to even have a chance to do anything about it. But that will probably never even happen. But to me, that's like the only possible way any serious conversation could take place. Or if you had a couple of billion, progressive billionaires, you take Bill ah. Gates and Warren Buffett, and right. they each put a billion or two into a fund and said, look, this is our progressive election fund. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, this cycle we're running against the NRA. So we want candidates to come out, progressive candidates from either party. Right. <laughs> who want Don't to, care. Who want to go up against the NRA. Uh, we know that they're going to threaten you with money. That's all right. We, we can they're outs- going to try to ruin you. Yeah, we can we, outspend them. We can outspend them 10 to 1. Don't worry about it. So... Uh, you know, if you're prepared to go uh, out there with an anti-NRA platform, we'll, we'll make the money available to you. Don't you worry. That'd be nice. Yeah. I just have to say this real quick. My wife, Heather, is she's a little weird. She is totally into true crime and stuff like that. She uh, Murder mysteries, all the stuff. She eats it up. And I made her promise me five years ago, if our marriage gets to the point where you're thinking about hire someone to kill me, just mm. fucking tell me and I will leave. I, you know what? I appreciate the heads up. I'm sorry I let you down, pissed you off, whatever. I'm outie. And I, I just appreciate your, your uh, um, you know, so hopefully there will never be a murder or suicide, whatever, in our house. I'll just give the message. She'll leave a you know, note on the table, and I'll pack my stuff and leave. And that's just a promise we made to each other a long time ago. And if that's not true love, I don't know what is. So you made her that offer. You didn't make me that offer. Here I thought no. to get rid of you, I was going to have to have you killed. <laughs> You're going to hire Thomas in North Carolina because for him it's just a couple-hour ride, and he's probably begging to do it. He'd probably pay you. Anyway, hey, Thomas, how's it going? He but, uh, yeah, no, I, I did not tell you that, and that's there's a reason why. You missed the beginning of the interview with Douglas Follett. I uh, asked him if uh, David Markham, because, you know, he and Dave are old friends. I said, does he oh, really? make you refer to him as sir or just my liege? <laughs> he said, I just refer to him as crazy David. <laughs> I said, that's funny. That's how I, that's what I call him too. <laughs> Crazy David. Oh, oh, don't know how to 
respond to that one. But mm. I loved his and your Napoleon show. That's what got me started in the first place. Absolutely best podcast I've ever listened to. Oh, I just wanted to. shucks. Stop sucking up. Just because I said yep. I was going to have you killed, you don't have to <laughs> well, suck up. That's a pretty good motivator. Well, well, there you go, folks. Um, that was a show. Probably not what you're expecting, not what I was yeah. expecting. I thought Doug was going to be able to talk more about Wisconsin-based Cold War stuff, but uh, apparently yeah. not. But uh, that's okay. But he had some, he had some cool insights. How often do you cool get insights. to listen to a Secretary of State talk exactly. about politics? Exactly. All right. Well, and we'll, you made him, and you and you made him go on Wikipedia. I'm sure. So yeah, good for you. I know, right? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, Doug, we know. We we've been to Wikipedia. We know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to play the outro. All right. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, again, I'm terribly sorry.